This week's episode is brought to you by Fairy Godmother Travel, the official travel agency of Kaminakura Weekly. With over, with over 15 years of experience, Teresa and her team will help you book the best Disney vacation you've ever had. Whether you want to go to Walt Disney World or Disneyland, on a Disney cruise, Adventures by Disney, Alani, whatever, everything in between, Fairy Godmother Travel is the only travel agency we trust to help make Disney magic. Contact them today at Kaminakura Weekly at FairyGodmotherTravel.com. Hello, and welcome to Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show and home of the world's first pair of independently born identical twins. I'm George. And I'm Jeff. And my ring came off this pudding can. <laughs> Was that the, like, pre-engagement ring? Oh, George. I'm trying with the monorail thing again, know, and you're just killing I it. I know. I figured that was too much of a given with people. What, that you we're going to mess something up? Exactly. Or no, that they're going to expect The Simpsons, because it's one of the greatest shows ever. Well, yeah. You know. So they because mono equals one, and rail <laughs> equals rail. <laughs> it's an abonified, electrified, mortified, condensinied... What's mortified no. in there? No, not at all. Oh, I okay. I, I think people are mortified that this vent is <laughs> still going, quite honestly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, I guess we'll, we'll finish up our monorail history? Yeah, Maybe? Let's, Maybe? let's jump into that. It's time for Disney History! On the last episode, we covered the first 100 years or so of the history of monorails. And we covered the earliest monorail in Russia, which was called the Road on Pillars. Uh, we also stopped with a look at the uh, Lardigu monorails in Ireland and California in the 1920s. And we also kind of looked at those crazy bicycle monorails, because let's face it, everyone wants to go on a bicycle with a monorail. Yes, they do. So let's head over to Germany to try out Eugen Langen's suspended monorail called the Schwebebahn? Guten Schwebebahn? Schwebebahn? Something like that. Or we'll just call it the Floating Railway. Okay. Yes. So it was installed in 1901 in Wuppertal, or I guess more Wuppertal, and is still being used today. It was built as a suspended monorail due to the hilly conditions, which seemed to make for a better ride for this type of monorail. You, um, you do remember, like we talked about last week, the bicycle monorail, right? Well, Jeff is going to tell us about another uh, interesting monorail. Interesting it is. Yes. Okay, so there's three separate people. They are Louise Brennan, August Sherland, and Piotr Slavovsky, because Ooh. why not? Um, the Russian. Russian, yeah. They each work independently on a gyroscope-based monorail, which might actually be the first real monorail based on the track design. So this monorail was balanced by a gyroscope. So Brennan patented his design in 1903, and the first one was presented in 1909 to the press. And the other inventors made demonstrations, but World War I effectively halted all the productions. One reporter actually stated that the gyro monorail kept the car balanced even with one side completely loaded with people, while the other side was absolutely empty. I, yeah, I... Physics! 
Jeff Physics. So I feel like we should have Neil deGrasse Tyson in here. Hello. Yeah. Something like that. Anyway, <laughs> like yeah, I, I can't I can't do that, yeah. So there was also a monorail built on the tide flats of Seattle in 1911. It cost about $3,000 a mile and went about 20 miles an hour. And like most of the other monorails we've looked at, it simply died from a lack of investors. And in 1914, at the Genoa Maritime Exposition, the Telfer monorail was exhibited. And it resembled the Alweg monorails that would be coming in the future. But no spoilers. Uh, it was a straddle-type monorail with two coaches on each side. And it would actually run for a few years before being dismantled. And then there's also another interesting monorail design, the Benny Railplane. So it was built in Glasgow, Scotland by George Benny, and the demonstration line debuted in 1929. So basically two electric propellers de delivered a short burst of power that would get the railplane to almost 100 miles an hour. And the intent was to make a line from London to Paris. And again, the economy derailed it, or deplaned it, or something. Yeah, I'm not ruined sure what it. we can say. Yeah, ruined it, that's better, yes. So the next set of monorails are considered sort of like modern monorails with the straddling beam design with a few various offshoots as expected. So in 1952, Dr. Axel Lennart Venner-Gren built a mile-long oval monorail test track in Germany. The monorail was able to reach speeds of 100 miles per hour. And, you know, there's a story about Walt and Lillian seeing the monorail in operation in 1958 during the filming of Third Man on the Mountain, and that would actually be related to a later monorail from Alweg. But more about this later, and this trip also inspired the Matterhorn Mountain at Disneyland. Yay! So next up is the Skyway monorail that debuted in Houston, Texas at Arrowhead Park. Um, and it was a suspended system that would carry 55 passengers per coach and was powered by an automobile engine. And it was a short test track at about a 1,600 feet, and the monorail never exceeded 10 miles per hour. So what's interesting is that the supports were actually shaped like candy canes. Um, it was dismantled and used at the Texas State Fair the following year and remained in a service for uh, a few years. So like many nations and urban centers, Japan was looking at ways to ease traffic congestion and monorails seemed like the sure bet. So in Tokyo in 1957, the monorail at Ueno, I'm going to say that, U-E-N-O, Ueno Zoo actually debuted. It was similar to the Wuppertal system in Germany with being a suspended monorail. And over the years, Japan would adopt more monorails than anywhere else in the world, including the Alweg and <clears throat> Not sure how to say this, but we're going to say Safeji monorails. Sure. <laughs> sure, we'll go with that. Maybe it's Safe G? I'll say Safe G. Why not? I'll say Safe G. Okay. Uh, so staying in 1957, Alweg would debut a full-scale monorail at the same test site as the 1952 monorail. And this is the one that Walt would see and it would inspire him to work with Alweg to bring the monorail to Disneyland. So let's talk a little bit about the Alweg company. It was uh, founded by Dr. Axel Leonard Werner Jin in uh, 1953, and he was a Swedish industrialist that, like Disney, had money frozen in Germany and other European countries from the war. So he built a test track outside of Cologne, Germany, and this is where Disney saw the monorail. So uh, Werner Gren was one of the wealthiest men in the world during the 1930s, based on eventually owning, through stock purchases, the Electrolux Company, you know, the ones that make the vacuums. And he did find uh, his interest in monorails during the last decade of his life. Um, 
the uh, Disneyland, Disneyland Alweg, wow, I can't say that one, monorail, you know, as Disney fans know, was built in 1959, and sadly, Grand died in 1961. Still, the Alweg company built the Seattle Central Monorail in 1962 for the Century 21 Exposition. Uh, and it's still running today and has the original Alweg cars, and they've racked up over a million miles. The Seattle Center Monorail operates two trains, one on each track for barely under just one mile with two stations. So many fans, many Disney fans know of Walt's close relationship with the author Ray Bradbury. Uh, he was definitely a big proponent of a monorail in Los Angeles and pushed Alweg to propose an LA monorail in 1963. Unfortunately, it was rejected by the Los Angeles City Council in favor of building literally nothing at all. They didn't build anything. <laughs> um, but they did build a monorail for the 1961 International Labor Fair Expedition in Italy. Sadly, the monorail was abandoned in 1963, but patrons to the exhi uh, exhibition could also have experienced Walt Disney uh, Sakurama, which was like a mini Tomorrowland. Yep. So in 1960, Hitachi Monorail licensed the technology from Alweg. They built the very successful Tokyo monorail, and they are still building monorails today. And at some point in the mid-1960s, Alweg ran into some financial troubles and was taken over by Krupp. It's noted that some of the technology used in the Disneyland Alweg monorails were acquired by Bombardier. So heading back over to Europe in 1958, we have the Safe-G monorail. Um, it was built by Lucien uh, Chadenson, who was a bridge builder in France. Um, and his interest was piqued by the Benny railplane and created a suspended monorail in which parts of the mechanisms are protected from the weather by the track itself. Um, it operated in Chartinoff, uh, which was mm. south of Paris, for many years. And you can also see this monorail in action in the 1965 film Fahrenheit 451. Yeah, excitement. So one story batted around the internet is that Walt Disney was approached about running the monorail for the 1964 New York World's Fair, or actually, you know, building it, you know, which is one we actually can't confirm. But it is well known that Robert Moses did ask Walt to do the entire amusement area for the fair. Walt declined since the amusement area was too spread out to really be effective. Thankfully, we did get the four amazing attractions, but that's those are all stories we covered a while back. And there was a monorail at the 1964 New York World's Fair, and it was, it was built by AMF. Yeah, which is... I've always wondered, whenever I see pictures of it, why a company that I associate with bowling and bowling equipment, you know, like the automatic pin setters, why would they build a monorail? But surprisingly, the company has done a lot more than just bowling pin setters. And I literally had no idea until We now. did this, yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, so it was actually originally known as the American Machine and Foundry and was founded in 1900. And they made automated uh, baking and stitching machines, uh, tennis rackets, model airplanes, golf clubs, mopeds, and, of course, nuclear reactors, because of that course. makes a lot of sense. But we're going to focus on the monorail. So AMF partnered with Safe-G to try and construct and market monorails for American cities. AMF built a one-station uh, suspended monorail with two lines that ran around the amusement area. The monorail was suspended 40 feet in the air and ran on a 4,000-foot loop. Three trains traveled in one direction, and four others traveled in the opposite direction, and I couldn't find any rationale for that. Makes anyway. no sense. And who knows? And it was 80 cents for adults and 60 cents for children. 
and the monorail operated from 9 a.m. to 2 a.m. during the fair's seasons. Of course, it was dismantled at the end of the fair in 1965. And the last monorail that we'll look at is the Tokyo Haneda monorail that whisks people from Haneda Airport to <clears throat> Hamamatsucho Station. Sure. Okay. Hey. All right. I've been watching a lot of anime lately. It shows. I can tell yes. by your pronunciation. Good. Um, so besides the Walt Disney World monorail, uh, this is one of the most successful monorails in the entire world. Uh, it's it's been operate excuse me been in operation since 1964 and covers approximately 11 miles with 11 stations, and it also carries about 120,000 passengers every day, and it's often cited as one of the true success stories for monorails in mass transportation. The only other major monorail to talk about now is the Walt Disney World monorail, but if you're a Disney fan, you're probably already familiar with it. Yes, and along with the Walt Disney World monorail, there are many other monorails that we've never covered or looked at or talked about. And there have been different types of people mover systems. Alweg made a lot of those. And, you know, like the ones in the airports, because Houston has a Wedway people mover. Tampa Airport has a people mover as well. And I even discovered there were mini monorails all over the place, like one at the Canadian Exposition. That's kind of awesome. So, yeah, there were tons of different things out there. Really way too many to cover, unless we start Monorail Weekly. Oh, that's too too much work. We need too to get Bob Gurr on, like, every week. <laughs> that's all it would be, definitely. So, well, if you've uh, had the opportunity to read any of these more, or read, ride, <laughs> any of these more modern monorails, give us a call on the Communicore Weekly Goat Line and tell us what you think about any of them. I know I've ridden the Seattle one, the Disneyland, the Walt Disney World one. And the Houston people mover. So, but that's about it for me, sadly. I don't get monorail credits, do we? I, no. Like coaster credits? I mean, it'd be cool if we did, but we don't have we badges, do that. sorry. Yeah, we don't have badges. Anyway, but give us a call on the Communicore Weekly Goat Line at 424-785-4628. 424-785-GOAT. He's a nerd. He's a geek. Because we all like to hear him speak. So listen up to the words from his beat. It's George's Book of the Week. For this week, I'm tackling another type of book that I actually love. The Walt Disney World Pictorial Souvenirs. Sure, sure, we've looked at souvenir guides before, but those were the larger hardbound books that usually came in around 200 pages or so. And beyond photos, those hardbound books also offered a lot more history and, you know, explanation so to speak, of the Vacation Kingdom. And the hardbound souvenir guides were larger, clocking in at 8.5 by 11 inches. And the pictorial souvenir guides were smaller, measuring 11 by 8.5 inches. And I know what you're saying, it's the same measurements, but it's like turning a piece of paper from portrait to landscape. Fair basically. enough, fair enough. Yeah, but they also had a lot less pages. Uh, most of the ones from the 70s had about 36 pages, and some others in the 80s had 64, and one of the last ones I have in the mid-90s has 84 pages. So I think paper got cheaper? Maybe? Sure. Eh, who knows? Okay, so as the name implies for these books, these are pictorial souvenirs and are mostly photographs. Go figure. There is text, usually a descriptive placeholder of some sort, and the books from the first decade stayed almost the same from year to year. They take us land by land through the Magic Kingdom, which is the majority of the pictorial guide. There are amazing shots of attractions and areas from the Magic Kingdom that are long gone. Also, the photos are a lot less posed and more, you know, in the moment, like you're supposed to be at the Magic Kingdom. 
Magic. And it's magic, exactly. So then you get six pages dedicated to the resorts and with some wonderful photos of the rooms and other areas. And then the final few pages are dedicated to recreation and shopping. So when Epcot Center opens, the title changes from Walt Disney World, a pictorial souvenir, end of the title, to Walt Disney World, a pictorial souvenir featuring the Magic Kingdom and Epcot Center. Which makes sense because that's pretty much all that's there. Mm. Um, both the Magic Kingdom and Epcot Center are both afforded about 25 pages each. Again, Epcot fans, Epcot fans not pans, those are different. Epcot fans are going to go nuts over this one because the photos of the pavilions and the attractions that are featured, a lot of them are gone or have changed so much you may not even recognize them. And of course, then there's the normal photos of some of the hotels, since there's more of them in recreation areas. And the last one I've got is the 1993 Pictorial Guide. And it's my least favorite, but don't tell it. Even though it has more pages, like I mentioned, it's got 84 pages, it's simply because Disney, it's not that they didn't do a really good job with it. They really, it's, it's very polished, a lot more polished than the other ones, but it's sort of, sort of stayed, sort of posed. It's what you expect from Disney in the 90s now that Michael Eisner took over, which we still love Michael Eisner. Of course. Don't get us wrong. In this timeline. But not, not in the, the darkest timeline, exactly. But, you know, they, they obviously hired some mm, very pretty people to be in all the photographs and stuff like that. You know, because in the 70s, guys, you can see normal people walking around. Anyway, those people are all, yeah, we won't worry about <laughs> normal. it. Normal. Exactly. They're normal. So, <clears throat> of course, they had to add the Disney MGM Studios. Still only had half as many pages as the other ones. So there's a little justification for Jeff. And uh, they had, of course, more results, resorts, the water parks, and stuff like that. Still, all of them are a great walk down memory lane, and any of them are going to be wonderful additions to your bookshelf. But if you can focus on the ones from the 70s and the ones that start off with Epcot, I think you're really, really going to enjoy them. So this week's book is sort of a lot of books called The Walt Disney World Pictorial Souvenir. Sometimes it's a one, sometimes it's a two. When you gotta go, what you gonna do? It's a bathroom break. A bathroom break. This week's bathroom break is slightly different than the rest we've ever done, because this one isn't located in a Disney theme park or Disney-related property at all. In fact, it's more than one restroom. It's all the public restrooms in North Carolina. And, you know, we never get political here at Communicor Weekly, but for this one, we had to take a stand on House Bill 2, or HB2 as it's being called. So this bill is discriminatory against people who identify as LGBTQI, and quite frankly, we're afraid it may someday extend to other places, including the theme parks that we know and love. It already affects Carowinds and dozens of other North Carolina parks, and we do not want it to spread to other states, and thus, other parks. So ever since we began, Communicore Weekly has always been open and caring with everyone, including those in the LGBTQI community. In fact, many theme parks are frequented by this community and even staffed by them, Disney uh, especially. So for a governing body to take steps to make them feel unsafe in their own skin, you know, in their, uh, unsafe in their own bodies, and possibly put them in harm's way, we totally disagree with that. People should be free to be who they are. And if someone identifies as a gender that they were not born as, then they should be able to live their life as the one that they do identify as. We strongly oppose HB2 and what it stands for. 
Community Weekly loves and supports the LGBTQI community, and we will continue to do so long after the show ends. So this bathroom break is dedicated to our family, friends, fans, and everyone else who is affected by this bill. We just want you to know that you have our support, our love, and our appreciation. Be yourself, not what society forces you to be. Thank you. Sometimes you might see it, sometimes you don't. Hey, look, what's that? It's a five-legged goat. Located just outside of Humphreys Service and Supplies in Disney's California Adventure, there is a Rambler Park there, just waiting to go on a road trip. So we've actually looked at this Rambler before uh, in the past, but it was actually just re recently redone and they added some stuff to it. And Cadet Will wrote us to tell that something new had been added to it. So in the back window on the right hand side, there is a sticker on the window for the spectacular Rainbow Caverns. Of course, this was part of the Rainbow Caverns Mine Train, which opened in 1956 at Disneyland, and later became part of the Mine Train through Nature's uh, Wonderland, which opened in 1960, and that uh, closed in 1977. So this family has obviously been there before. Exactly, and we would like you guys to ramble over to our contest. Okay, I'll take it. Go on. Sure, maybe. Tell me well, more. I was going to do something about, you know, that guy who wrote that song about uh, Body is a Wonderland. Um, but your body is nature's wonderland. Okay, I could have seen that one going too. That would have been, been a little okay. weird that way, but okay. Yeah, a little uncomfortable. Okay, so we're up to the segment of the show. We like to call a year of the moon. <laughs> You're so limited time cadets prize winner. And this week's it's... Jeff's turn to announce the prize winner. Oh, that's right, it is. So this yes. week, uh, they're, they're, you're going to win a Fairy Godmother Travel uh, prize pack. So thank Yay. you, Teresa Corey. Uh, and this week's wither, winner, oh my god. A wither? This week's Hopefully winner not, but. <laughs> is Nicholas G. from Gig Harbor, Washington. Fantastic. Hooray! Maybe it's an umbrella. Yeah, for that area, it might be. Yeah, it's a, do we have community weekly umbrellas? We we did, but they all flew away. They all flew away. <laughs> exactly. They, they got turned inside out and flew away. <laughs> so as a reminder, if you haven't listened to the past year and a half worth of shows, to be a part of this year of a million or so limited time cadets prize contest, you just have to email us at communicorweekly at gmail.com with your name, address, and birthday so we can put you on the list and there's still plenty of shows there is plenty of winners, shows left my friends but not much longer and the no. more people that mail us the harder it gets to win you have 35 more chances after this show wow that's crazy good luck okay well thank you guys so much for watching and listening to another episode of communicore weekly yeah no matter how you get the show if you watch it on itunes leave us a comment or if you're on, if you get it on itunes i mean on youtube what you know what i mean just leave us a comment or a rating we'd love to hear what you think about it as i mentioned earlier email us at communicoreweekly at gmail.com to enter the contest or just say hello people uh you can also like us on facebook <laughs> at facebook.com slash weekly and follow us on twitter instagram and periscope I'm at Imagine Nerding. He's at Jeff Heimbuck. And you can always give us a call on the Communico Weekly Goat Line at 424-785-4628. And visit the Communa Store on our website or get awesome t-shirts at communicoreweekly.spreadshirt.com because you know you want to wear them. And there's still plenty of time left to get your official cadet membership card and stickers. Uh, send a self-addressed stamped envelope to Communicore Weekly, P.O. Box 432, Orange, California, 92856. And visit patreon.com slash weekly to find out how you too can support the greatest online show. For Jeff Heimbuck, I'm George Taylor. And for George Taylor, I'm Jeff Heimbuck. Thanks so much for listening, guys and gals. We'll see you next time on Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show.
to see the dog.